Redemption should exist behind the walls. Hope should exist behind the walls. Mercy can and should exist behind the walls. That that does not disrespect or, or does not diminish our love and care and affection for people who have been victims of crime. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to build a little bit of anticipation. We are a big fan of partnerships at Stay Forth. We have some incredible partners that we've been working with, and we're going to kick off partnerships with a few others, because ultimately, we want to see more people get this message of healthy leadership, of sustainable leadership, of going the long haul. And there are others that can help us get the word out about that, and there are others we can help get the word out about their message. Maybe your organization is one of those. And in the future, you'll be able to apply to be a Stay Forth partner if we feel like our organizations and our messages fit together. So in just a few weeks, you're going to hear about a new partnership that we are kicking off. And we're asking for you guys to partner with us so we can continue creating this podcast for you, curating amazing conversations And again, we love having these conversations, but it does take quite a bit of work to be able to put two episodes a week out there to you guys. So we will share about this possibility for you to partner with us and for you to hear about our new partner. We think they're going to be a great opportunity to invite you into maybe hearing more about them so that they can help you push your cause further down the road so that you can raise money for your organization or your ministry or your idea you are going to want to hear about these guys. So I know it builds the anticipation, but it doesn't really tell you what we're talking about. I promise in the next few weeks, you'll hear more. So enjoy today's episode. There's something about a really amazing leader that can change the hearts even of the most skeptical people in the hardest situations. Recently, I had an opportunity to go with my wife to a play that was in a prison. Now, it's part of a long story where my wife and I have a relationship with a friend who's an inmate in prison. God willing, will be out uh, sometime this year. And we had the opportunity to observe this time. It was an incredible experience. It was an incredible play. It was great to see our friend. But the highlight of that day was a speech that I heard from Dean Williams. Now, Dean Williams is the head of Colorado Department of Corrections. So he's over all the prison system in Colorado. I mean, talk about a really hard job. Talk about cynical perspective on it, even a fearful perspective that people have on this. And as I heard him speak, I didn't hear fear. I didn't hear just a broken system. I heard hope. I heard form and I heard redemption. He is bringing form and structure and shape to some of the things that we may dream about for the prison system, something in us hopes for the reentry of people into society, the redemption that clearly I knew this guy is a follower of Jesus. I mean, it was an incredible rallying speech. I mean, tears were coming down my cheeks thinking, yes, this is the kind of man that we need leading the charge. I also got to meet the warden of the prison that day, and it was an amazing experience. And I thought, I need to meet this guy, Dean Williams. So I had the opportunity to interview Dean And we have a two-part series here on the podcast. So I ask Dean about his life and his past and his faith and how he mixes that as a public figure and one in office that has a really, really big job to do. He oversees a $1 billion budget, that's right, with a B, and many, many, many thousands of staff across our state 
who are not only keeping people safe in incarceration, but actually are bringing them back to redemption for their lives. I love what Dean is doing. I love this interview. And we just had to break it into two parts. It's so good. You can consume half of it now, half of it in the next episode. But I loved hearing about this man's faith. One of those that I, as a faith leader, just want to cheer him on, just want to champion him, do anything possible to help him with the mission that God has given him. He shares the story of where he got that mission from God. He shares the story of some of the tensions and the struggles in the midst of this, some of the dreams that he has for inmates. And of course, my wife and I have many of those dreams as well, not only for our friend, but for the countless people who will get out of prison each year and hopefully will remain out of prison and become a thriving part of the culture. So this was a fun interview to do. I got to sit at the head of Colorado Department of Corrections um, in a boardroom and just had this amazing conversation with Dean Williams. Man, what a fascinating guy. What an incredible leader. There's so many leadership lessons we can take from these two episodes. So enjoy my conversation with the Executive Director of Colorado Department of Corrections, Dean Williams. Well, guys, I've got a special interview today. Uh, I'm here with Mr. Dean Williams, actually in my home city of Colorado Springs. And um, I, I just want you to share what is involved in this Executive Director role of Department of Corrections here in Colorado. What does that mean? Well, um, it involves a lot. The, 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 um, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, uh, we may talk about this in a bit, but I'm, I'm an unlikely executive director in many ways. I, I came from Alaska, I ran that system, and um, I, w I never intended to be in this position, not only in Colorado, but Alaska. And through a set of circumstances that maybe we'll talk about in a minute, uh, I found myself there. And so what I thought this role, who someone would be in this role, I mean, I think different people approached their leadership differently. I think, <clears throat> as you know, I'm a follower, and I firmly believe in servant leadership. And I think the biggest role that I have is getting others in the position where they win and where they are become good leaders themselves. Because... Mm -hmm. I'm not really running much of anything, to be honest, at the end of the day. This is a complex organization. There's 6,100 employees, 20,000 men and women mm -hmm. are in our custody, my custody. I mean, that's just saying that is, you know, who, who can manage such a thing? Mm -hmm. You can't, and you have to have a lot of Close other... Close to $1 million budget? <clears throat> a $1 billion or budget. Bi sorry, yeah. billion dollar budget, a B. yes. But we just hit a billion dollar, we just hit a billion dollars on our wow. budget. And so, I approach this position with how do I get other people to lead well? How do I have other people? It doesn't matter if it's the janitor here or someone who's run all of my prison operations. I think there's, as a leader, you have an opportunity and I think it's incumbent upon me and I especially feel this because of our faith um, that my job is to help others, disciple others, uh, while I'm being discipled at the same time by other friends as well. I think that's the um, that's that's what that's what I face every day is how do I help others lead. We're so glad you're here. Um, somebody asked me the other day. Um, so did you meet you know Mr. Dean Williams? Yes, I did actually. Where'd you meet? Well, we met in prison, of course, and uh, and it was the day of this play that had been scheduled and you know really groundbreaking stuff there. We loved that. And I told you before the interview, I I did not expect that feeling of hope. Um, I've been to Sterling many times visiting a friend, and um, you and the warden talked, and I mean, I was blown away. 
I mean, I thought, I mean, no offense to anyone listening to this who, who's a pastor, but I thought that is the best charge or sermon that I've heard in a long time. Mm-hmm. Redemption. It's obvious that it matters so deeply to you, and you are just calling these guys that to, to responsibility. Say it is your responsibility. We're working on the outside. You're working on the inside. And I was blown away. I mean, wiping tears away, thinking, like, yes, this is exciting. I'm thinking about all my brothers and sisters behind bars. Um, so we just want to say we're so glad that you're here. I was so deeply moved and disoriented driving a couple hours back home saying, that's not what I expect. You get a little cynical heading into prison to visit a friend. Um, and it was, it was incredible. So I'm excited about this thing that you and the team are calling The Shift. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about The Shift? Well, I, first of all, that's super encouraging, so thanks for that. Um, it's really, I live out of Micah 6.8 in some ways, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And there's a long history even when I ran the Alaska system. It touches me even talking about it because, um, like I said, I'm an unlikely executive director and God has put me in a place <clears throat> to lead a very complex system that has a very punitive-based, lacking hope, lacking purpose, people who are incarcerated. And I tell people, I said, hey, as I'm trying to advance this shift to say um, redemption should exist behind the walls, hope should exist behind the walls, mercy can and should exist behind the walls, that that does not disrespect or or does not diminish our love and care and affection for people who have been victims of crime and how we handle that. I think both of those things, both accountability and uh, redemption, <laughs> or as Micah says you know, in the book of Micah, uh, justice and mercy, um, uh, responsibility, yet second chances, I think all of that can live in the same house. I mean, I think that was, that's the message of Scripture. I mean, the overall Scripture is, uh, especially of Christ teaching, not that I would, my fellow pastors, believe me, I'm not going to bust out a sermon anytime <laughs> soon on this because I have a lot of other people. I go to church every Sunday, too, to be teaching. I'm, I'm in a student mode every day, every Sunday, believe me, I'm a student. Um, but, but I think that has been lost in some ways in, in the sort of the penal system of our country and that and the results, and by the way, we know that because the results are so marginal and poor out of a prison system. And I think for us, the shift is to say, no, there is going to be accountability. Your freedom has been lost. That's a big deal. You are going to be here. But now what happens here really matters. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of programs. I'll just, I'll, I'll just cut to the chase on this. My old state, Alaska, my current state, Colorado, they have two things in common. They spent a lot of money on programming behind the walls, then they didn't spend very little money on programming, then they've spent a lot of money back on programming. Guess what never changed in those 20 years, both Colorado and Alaska? Recidivism? Recidivism. Yeah. None of it has changed. So that doesn't mean you throw all of the programs out because you need to have occupied time. But the reality is the reason why we haven't made any of those really dramatic changes of recidivism is the prison culture. Mm-hmm. It's all about the prison culture. That's a return to prison rate, recidivism. Right. So the return to prison, recidivism, um, has been constant in Colorado. We're, it was are constant we close to 50%? 50%, right? close okay. to 50%. It was higher in Alaska. Mm-hmm. The one similar stories between both states, though, is that that re- return to prison rate uh, hasn't changed. 
And the reason why, um, it's really clear. Uh, I'm just convicted on this. It's just really clear. The programs are fine to occupy time, but they don't change people. What changes people, um, well, as a follower, I know what changed me. It was, quite frankly, the Christ and God busting through into my life is what changed me. But even if you approach this from, um, you know, a lot, you do a lot of fishing, right? A lot of people spoke into my life before I finally raised my hand and said, okay, I'm walking with you, God, and I'm, I'm turning away from myself. Um, but a lot of seeds were planted in my life. Um, and, and even from a secular point of view, when I talk to people from the secular world, I say, um, look, the, the, the data's clear. This doesn't work. Yep. And what does work is providing safe and humane environments. It's the reason also why I want more people inside, not just a faith community, but others as well, to make impact on in creating relationships and opportunities in people's lives. That's what changes people. We know it from research. We know it from other countries who have done prison systems differently. And I think part of what I've faced in making this shift is just saying, hey, can we just acknowledge that something's not working very good here? And uh, we've had a hard time sort of admitting that to ourselves, that something's not really working very good, is it? Mm. And we're spending all this money. So for me, it's sort of lifting both things up, accountability and responsibility and and punishment that is sensible, but coupled with that is the important part that you have an opportunity for redemption here. And if you want, if you want to choose it, man, we want to help you. But if you don't, that's that's your decision too. I love the tension of that. Maybe not love's the right word, but I deeply respect the tension of that. That you have their families behind these inmates, their staff that you have to take care of, right. and you want to raise their dignity and. Uh, what, 25% turnover rate when you entered the state? Share about mm -hmm. some of the things you were up against as you entered, um, besides the turnover rate, high recidivism rate. What were you up against when you took this well, job? Well, no, I, the big part is turning over staff and, uh, why st and also recruiting people to work in this department who wouldn't normally want to work for a correction system to say, there's room for you at this table. Mm -hmm. And I don't need everybody who, I mean, I, believe me, I want to keep recruiting from where we're at. <clears throat> I want to keep recruiting from the military. I want to keep recruiting from people who said, hey, this is a career choice versus a law enforcement choice. But there's, there's enough room at this table for other people who maybe wanted to go into the social work field or mm -hmm. want to be in the helping, more helping field. Um, so and changing so, the narrative almost? So it's changing the narrative. Yeah. And, and so some of those challenges of keeping people, making an so part of this shift, or, or what I'm, you may ask me about, what's normalization? Why normalizing? This yeah. is all about normalizing Talk about prisons. That. Yeah. So the the whole point of normalizing prisons and what normalization means, just making conditions behind the walls as familiar and similar as they are outside the walls. And the reason for that is that we know from a whole bunch of research in a whole bunch of Scandinavian countries, and Germany, and Netherlands, and even Ireland, they've turned down the recidivism rate by making prisons more normal. And many other states, I mean, states are starting to adopt this. Mm -hmm. Conservative states, liberal states, Republican states, Democratic states, I mean, North Dakota, you know, conservative, Oregon, liberal. Many of my colleagues and I have said, we're going to do prison differently. And I wonder what we're going to see. And we're already starting to see some results. We're going to see some ticks down of, of violence behind the walls. This is hugely important. Mm -hmm. For every incident we can prevent, because prisons now are better. 
It makes it safer not only for the inmate population, but for the staff. So I tell people if you don't care about the inmates, which I think you should, because 95% are coming home. Um, and it would, oh, by the way, especially if we're of the faith, that should matter to us. It's very prescriptive mm -hmm. in terms of what Christ it's pretty spoke clear. to us. It's pretty clear. Who were to care about? Who were to care about? <laughs> um, um, but the other thing is, it's just the results are so much better when you normalize, and you're able to attract and keep staff because now they're safer. So that's a big part. Let's make it more humane and purpose-driven behind the walls for the inmate population. And they're still being accountable. They're still being held mm -hmm. to task for committing, some for committing very bad crimes. And they're gonna be in prison most of their life, probably. But there has to be purpose. There has to be hope. And there has to be life uh, there. Mm -hmm. And without that, well, without that, it's why you take a look at, with all due respect to some other states who I pray for, um, they're in serious trouble. And we have our problems, I have problems every day, <laughs> believe me. Um, this is far from a perfect system, oh heavens, help us. But, um, but this whole move and what's happened and what you saw at Sterling, to be quite frank, um, is when we're starting to give the inmate population responsibility. Yep. You want and this I could to be safe? See their shoulders bow up. Right. When you are breathing dignity into them. Well, no, the whole deal is to square them up. Like, you want you, this is your house, then what do you want this to be like? And I tell you what's changing the prison culture is yeah, we are by giving them opportunities to own their condition. And instead of this top down, my team, and I have a great set of wardens and others who are really get it. And they're um, providing opportunities and speaking out of life to say, what are you going to do? What do you want this to be like? And so this whole normalization effort, we have normalization committees that are staff and inmates. We just won a grant from the very Institute of Justice. That grant was written by the staff and the inmates. The inmates really wrote most of it. Wow. And uh, so when I reminded Vera when we uh, got the award to say, hey, this was written by inmates. Uh, yeah. Where are you going to put that, you know, put that in your bonnet? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <clears throat> and, um, man, so, nine, so yeah, you're seeing, I, you say shoulders bow up, I say shoulders square up, right? When, when men feel like men again and they have responsibility for safety and protection of the environment, of each other, I was at uh, Lyman uh, a couple of weeks ago, and out of eight or ten guys standing around me, which of course makes some of my staff nervous. Mm -hmm. um, but um, before I left, they asked me to pray for them. I mean, boom, right? That's that's a moment. Mm. Now, does that change the entire system? No, it doesn't. But the same way that play, one flew of the cuckoo's nest at Sterling that you saw a Christmas carol that the women um, uh, produced, and we have several other shows. It's not just about theater. It's about faith community. We have the tremendous, you know, the, we have several churches, major, huge mega churches here Incredible in Colorado. Stuff happening. Are going behind the walls, doing services every week, sending volunteers, they're piping the service in. Um, and so that is an, an amazing, bringing people in, by the way, is another part of normalization, is sort of the second leg of the stool in terms of how you change prisons. You normalize them, but the second leg is you bring people in 
from the outside and <clears throat> who develop relationships with, with, with uh, the inmate population. What's the biggest thing that you see as an uptick when people come in? Is it new ideas, new opportunities, dignity? I think it's, re it's relationship. It's, prison is a very, very, and not surprising, is a very lonely environment. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of time to reflect um, over everything wrong you've done. That can hit any of us. I mean, part of the conviction of us as being followers that I face every night when I lay my head down is like, man, God, I, I really blew some moments in my life. When, and I know you're forgiving that, but you just redirect that away from me and redirect my focus and help me for what you've called me into as much as I question it and wonder why I'm here. Um, so that relationship building that occurs in those moments, you may think it's well only there an hour or two a week. It's, it's fundamentally changes the environment. Mm. And it fundamentally changes staff too. Mm. Because now it's, you're not just another group of people we have to kind of watch, you're, you're here to help bolster what we're trying to do. And you're normalizing it. You're showing you care. I think you're, we're following Christ's sort of directive to us, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, so that it's, it's, a, it's a big deal for us. And I've continued to try to open the doors for the faith community, for all faiths, because of the role that I have. Um, it's the Christian community that responds the most you know, fervently, to be honest. But I would op I'm opening those doors to others. It's also the reason why I'm sending men out to work um, in the last six months or nine Talk months. Talk about that. I, I love what you're doing there. I know it's an experiment, a risk, probably some. So the reason, why, the reason why people return to prison is basically for three reasons. three reasons. One, they don't have a job. Two, they don't have a place to live. And three, they don't have social relationships that you have. And if I took anyone listening here and I said, let me put you in prison for a month, let me see how you are at the end of that month. You would not be well for a while, even in a good prison, because those three things have been taken. I mean, a job, a home that's yours, that is familiar and comfortable and has meaning to you, and all these friends and relationships that you have, that we all have. Um, and if you take those three things away, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So um, th that, uh, the ability to to structure those things is really important. So, on the job front, um, I have said that if you're, I've changed, I did this back in Alaska, and I have said if you're moving through um, the system and you're coming to the end of your prison sentence, um, instead of sitting behind the walls, why shouldn't you be working at a prevailing wage job and coming back to the prison at night? Um, and we can't do that with all prisons. It's a little bit harder for some prisons, but the reality is most prisons can make it work. We have people in minimum facilities all, all over the place, out on the western slope, Rifle and Delta. There's no fence around those places. They're, I mean, deer, turkeys wander onto them. They're open prisons, right? I mean, the, there, there's, there's, uh, my man can run away if he wants to, and there's about 800 or 900 of them right now, even in those two prisons that can walk away if they want to. And the reason they don't is because it's not worth it. They even figure that out. So instead of just sitting there, why not work a job that puts some money in your pocket before you get out? <clears throat> I did it back in Alaska with, with seafood processors who have a hard time. Um, and because the unemployment rate is so low here in Colorado, 
there's tremendous opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I have companies that are coming along. I have Opal Foods mm -hmm. out of Sterling. That's, this is like an hour away from them. I have 12 men there today as we speak, making $15 an hour, wow. returning to prison at night. I love it. And I love how you talk about prison isn't necessarily a place. They're still in prison, quote unquote, but they're today working, saving up money. Game changer to get out and have even a couple thousand bucks more is a better, a better Well, some of them are leaving with the most money they've ever had in their life, which is $5,000 or wow. something, four or $5,000 now. And so that is a major game changer. And I mean, we are trying to transition people out. We release 700 people from prison every month. And the reason why half of them come back is that they don't belong to something. And a job, dignity, and work um, provides a place for you to belong. Mm -hmm. And so it starts to hit two of the markers, one, employment, and two, mm -hmm. a sense of belonging, social networking. Mm -hmm. So um, it's we're on the infancy stage. We have about Statewide, we only have 25 or 30 men, but I have multiple projects. In fact, uh, my team is just meeting with another employer right now to say, hey, could you take 10 guys or 15 guys at your place, pay the minimum wage, you treat them like every other employee, they go to work with you, they come back to the prison at night. Eventually, where I like to keep the second and third base on is to say, you know what, you need to come back to the prison. There's work camps. There's agricultural places that have 10 cap and we send people out right now we send firefighters out right now that are prisoners to go fight fires they go work at main they stay at main camps and um, we've been doing that in this state before I got here I'm just extending that to say while we're doing that and if you've been one of the good guys behind the wall you should have a job before you get out that's the sort of the mind blowers that you know, you're getting out in six months, nine months anyhow. Do you want a job now, or do you want to sit in your cell? Most men with any sense, or women with any sense, are saying, yeah, I'll take the job, because I got nothing. It's a running start. It is a running start, and it, it and go talk to them. Go talk to them about what it means to have the job. Go talk to one of the men who's at Opal Foods right now. Go talk to guys that are over at Buena Vista. At Delta, we're working on a program right now to have 25 or 30 men work for Department of Transportation making 16 17 18 dollars an hour six months before they get out nine months before they get out doing work that dot can't find employees for in the first place everybody wins it, yeah no, it's, it's so it's multiple multiple there's multiple winners on it's it and I, I think it's the, it's the game changer for how we return how we get away from this return to prison rate that's almost 50 percent well I know you were just down in Angola and they've seen an incredible turn there. Uh, what'd you learn? What'd you see? Boy, it really reinforced, you know, so Angola, Burl Kane started a program there of, Bible, of a Bible college behind the walls, which we are actually doing. Uh, we're starting, um, we've been kind of struggling to find, if any of you are listening, uh, who could help us. But I think Burl, and you know, Burl's still around. I just met with him in Louisiana when I went to see Angola prison. Uh, first of all, let me just say, Angola prison is laced with such a horrible history of the of our country around slavery and I mean it's Black History Month and racism and things and yet they've taken that prison and all that sort of like baggage baggage of history and just some really wrong things um, and it's that prison has found a redeemable a redemption spot under under Burroughs leadership I think at that time other people may disagree but I gotta tell you um, what is 
profound about that is not just the Bible college and what it means. So that Bible college is inmates who are getting associates, bachelor's degrees, even some with seminary wow. master's degrees, wow. who now serve all the other men in that prison. That prison is 5,500 men. It's hugely violent. So that Bible college helped change the violence and the structure uh, behind what happened was happening in that 5,500 wow. prison, in that prison. But it also profoundly changed what we just talked about is the culture, is the prison culture. I walked in there, my wife went with me. Um, I walked on units, there were no officers on living units. They're all being led by men, all by men who are mentors now, who went to the Bible college, mm -hmm. and they're all leading each other. Mm -hmm. And it's almost unnerving the sense of safety that is there. Like, I've been through a lot of prisons, and sometimes the air can go on the back of your neck, like, wow, this place has got some profound issues. Gangs are running this place. The gang issue is almost non-existent in Angola. So it, it turns things on its head, because there's not, and all the programs that are being taught are being taught by the prisoners. And it's, there's this environment of respect and dignity, and the staff like working there. So, I mean, I always go off rails a little bit when I get to a place because I'm talking to people that maybe they weren't going to intend me to talk to just because I'm trying to really get to feel like what's really going on here. Your um, team's got to rein you back in. <coughs> you know, right. Hey, get over right, here. You right, got to talk right. or something. Right. No, and, but, you know, and there's people around doing all this stuff, and you're like, who's that? They're all, they're all prisoners. And most of the men who are there are lifers. So, it turns, it turns what you think would be that environment on its head. And the reason why it does is one, is that, to be honest with you, they're, they're cranking out men of faith who are sold out for Jesus, who are spending their life behind prison, who are the real deal, much as the real deal is you and me. Redemption. Redemption. And they're going to serve there. Now, I would argue that Louisiana's sentencing and some other things are profoundly uh, extreme. In fact, they're changing some of their laws. But I think what changes this country is saying, hey, if we actually show that prison can be different and redemption is real, then maybe we wouldn't feel that we have to lock people up with extensive long sentences. There's still accountability. And if you're one of the guys who gets it, that should mean something different than if you're not. If you're the same knucklehead as you went into prison, it was dangerous then. And quite frankly, I want you behind the walls as long as possible. For you you can't safety. change that attitude, right? You can't you're change that. You're going to work with the ones who right. want to change. Right. And will some sort of get by and trick you and not really mean it? Yeah, maybe. But not long term. I tell you who knows the difference is the other guys behind the walls. They know if you're the real deal or not. So part of the reason why you want them to help lead stuff is that they're the ones who are going to keep you safer. They're going to know they're really are working this, really, really, you know, care about what the rest of their life is like. And so, yeah, Angola was confirmed a lot for me, um, but it also um, was jarring because these prisons and these buildings are old, there's no air conditioning, the heating is marginal, it's, the environment is not, they, 50 men, 60 men sit in a, you know, sleep in a bay. There's nothing aesthetically that is remotely humane about a lot of the conditions there. And yet, 
there's this hope that lives there. Mm. And that's the profound juxtaposition, right? Mm. How beautiful. can you have that environment and have hope? Well, I would say, well, kind of only God can do that, right? But now you have men who are walking. Mm. And um, I want that for Colorado. It's mm. incredible. You seen Just Mercy yet? I haven't, but I missed a showing the uh, director of the film. I was at one event. I missed the. I haven't. I haven't seen. I read the book. Um, so uh, good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Bring your tissues, man. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's intense. Um, man, so many questions. We could go different directions. Let's talk about the arts. Uh, mm -hmm. You're a self-proclaimed drama geek, right. and you love. Um, you've been on stages before. Helped bring not only this play but several other things um, here. You know, in the Colorado system. Why are you such a big advocate of the arts in prison? I think it's, um, I think it's painting, it's theater, it's music. There's something about all that that changes our sort of human experience. Mm -hmm. I think we all go to church and when we go to worship even, and, and, and there's something about music and about how we express ourselves that sort of makes things real. and and sort of um, changes where we live in some ways. And so I'm, I'm a fan of, of those expressions and, I mean, a good book, writing film, right? All those things provide us to sort of reflect in what, and maybe also to sort of speak into our lives about things and how God speaks through us in many different forms. But um, the one thing I'm, I'm a big fan of, it's, it's not only theater, but what it does to not only for the people who are in the show, like if you went to Christmas Carol and you, you were you were saw uh, Cuckoo's Nest with it, Sterling, to talk back afterwards and to hear the men and women talk about to be part of something that they've never been part of and how that was life-changing. How insecure they were going in and saying, exactly. what am I doing? Am I going exactly. like, to get made fun of for being in a play? Right, exactly. And, and also... Um, because their life experience of having wins in their life, is, they've not had a lot of wins. Most people behind the walls, not surprisingly, come from really difficult environments, really hard environments, violent homes, substance abuse homes, abused themselves. Um, and so for them to have a moment to reflect upon like, hey, I was a good guy there. I was a good woman there. Um, I did something that actually was giving back. I mean, talk about bringing tissues. I mean, at the, they talked back after the Christmas Carol in Denver. So they did Christmas Carol, which, you know, everyone's seen about a dozen times. And, you know, you're like, oh, boy, you're going to see Christmas Carol. I mean, I'm a little jaded by it, right? But just because I'm like, oh, well, I guess it's an annual thing I have to do. But, um, but was and the show was good. But what was profound is this talk back afterwards where they spent 30 minutes talking about the experience and talking about like their their hearts, their guts are on the table. Just saying, look, I've done so many things wrong in my life. I, 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 don't, know how, I don't know how I can ever repay that back. But now I've had one thing where I get to do something productive and it's actually giving back to all of you. So for biggest, the biggest theme was I could be able, I get to give, give something back. I've taken so much from some people. And there's very plain about that. Like there's no rationalizing, intellectualizing. No pretense. There's no pretense about what they've taken. And they're, now they're able to talk about it in, in a sort of safe environment. So theater kind of does that. 
and I think other creative opportunities. So not just theater, but you mentioned, you know, we have a, or before we started recording, that we're doing a podcast now called Within, not to compete with yours. No, <laughs> guys, listen to the podcast. And uh, you were the guest on the first, the first episode. One. Yeah. yeah, guys, we'll put that in the show notes. It's an incredible episode. So the, um, this is the first podcast done in Colorado. I did a similar podcast briefly back in Alaska. Uh, there's one other state, California does a podcast. I've listened to theirs. I think, uh, all due respect to California, uh, I think our podcast is more interesting. Um, it's done by two inmates with a professor. So well uh, done. And uh, it's raw, it's real. Sometimes I've heard some of the recordings and we're like, Ooh, where are they going? Um, but part of it is, is also teaching them to be productive and like to try to restrain and say, we're not gonna. We're not gonna war talk. We're not going to make light of uh, what of any criminal things they've done, and really own it. And they do. Sometimes they're, it's real and raw a bit, but it's also filled with accountability and responsibility, but also grace and and about how they're just looking for a way to be forgiven. Really, my words, not theirs. But a lot of this is how do I get forgiven? Mm-hmm. Um, and the. The other thing, though, is that you know men are also. We're just starting a newspaper too. One of the first newspapers in the country done by prisoners. Mm-hmm. They have a whole. I'm supposed to go be interviewed by them soon. They have a whole, uh, you know, editorial board. They have uh, uh, a whole team of you know interviewers. Uh, they have a, you know, and they're all taking it super serious. Um, and the last thing I'll mention is that there's other theater productions. You know, the men at uh, one of the prisons in Canyon City, I think it's Fremont, are doing Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, now, as followers, we know there's that, that whole story is all jacked, jacked <laughs> up in many ways. Um, but I've been in that show twice, by the way. Um, and when I was back in Anchorage, I played the part of Pontius Pilate, believe it or not. And um, I found myself praying for the people who were in the show before the show, before rehearsals. Because you know they knew I was like. a new as a follower, so yeah. I'm using sort of this jacked up, not very well scripturally based show. Pretty doggone good music, I must say. <laughs> um, but all those things are not, are you know, theater in itself is is a broken you know expression of the human condition and is not a god itself. These things can be gods in people's lives, like any good thing can be. So let me be your disclaimer there. We all get that. I get that. But. They provide purpose. It opens a door for another opportunity. And even in that show, as I go down there and I, I'm going to meet with the cast, uh, who are all prisoners, who are doing Jesus Christ Superstar, say, hey, you know, I was in this show twice. By the way, can I leave here? Can I pray for you before I leave? You know? Now, I'm in a role that uh, is a, uh, a secular role, but, um, but the reality is, is that um, I am who I am because of what God has done in my life. I don't push that on others. I wouldn't expect you as pastors and people who are listening to your podcast. Yeah, you're, you're, you're busting the word, but the reality is is the, the fruit of that or the non-fruit of that is not, is not yours. It's not mine, right? I mean, that's, that's clearly in God's purview. My job is just to say, hey, this is, who, this is what he's done in my life. Not for nothing. If it makes a difference to you, I'd certainly like to talk to you about it. If you don't, that's okay. It's too. For such a time as this, for such a season, it's interesting to look at your story and how pieces of that. You were the director of the Soup Kitchen in Anchorage? I was. Man, what a resume. Uh, You've done some law stuff. 
Yeah. What haven't you done? Do well, you? no. Well, Circus let me performing? let me be, let me <laughs> let me really bust it out and be really transparent with you about and and since I, I got a team of faith leaders on me, I, I don't want to. I really want to. I really want to get really real for a minute. A lot of those things I went through, like even the soup kitchen was back then. Some of those didn't end well, and um, and it was not because um, I thought I was doing everything right. I, uh, I mean, not perfectly. But sometimes when we're thrust into positions, things don't really go well. And I think as leaders and faith leaders, we have a hard time saying, you know what, this is kind of jacked up. This isn't going like I thought it was. I went from government to work for a faith-based soup kitchen, and I thought this is going to be great, working with a bunch of people who love Jesus, you know. I'm, I'm sure I have pastors right now laughing hysterically, <laughs> saying, this is going to be, this is gonna be well. great. This is going to be great. I'm working with a bunch of other faith leaders. This is going to be awesome. Look at me go. Um, but some of these things don't go the way you think they're going to go. And sometimes you walk, you walk off and you go, what was that about? Mm. So my journey to this job through soup kitchen, I know I ran the Alaska system, that correctional system for two years, ten months. Um, how I got that job, this is complete, I mean, it would be a whole other podcast about how God, the short of it is, is that um, I had retired. I got to know the guy who became governor. I was sure he was never going to become governor. Um, I started, I had a great job with him as a special assistant, doing really cool stuff, flying all over the country. I was in the White House, in the Pentagon. I mean, this is a great job. Mm -hmm. I had no responsibility. I had no supervision. Um, and, um, but he started talking about what was wrong with the correctional system in Alaska. And I made some suggestions, and he said, you do it. And I did it. And we found out what was profoundly wrong. People were dying. They shouldn't have been dying. And we were, we were sideways. And I ended up running it, not because I wanted to, but I'll tell you why I ran it, because an Inupiaq woman from a village in Alaska, St. Michael, Alaska, I went to tell her and her rest of her family about why their son had died in prison. It was all terrible. It was all, it was a death. It was just preventable. It was just awful. And the governor, to his credit, said, go talk to the families before we go tell the stories and we release all the evidence about what happened to why people were dying in prison. I was kicking the ground because oh, I was going to have to travel there. And, and to be clear, I made, it, I made it very clear with the governor and others in Alaska, I was never going to take over the correctional system there. <laughs> there was too many problems. I had just done the investigation. I knew how bad it was. I knew what profoundly was wrong, I thought. I knew why men and women were dying. I wanted nothing to do with it. Why would you go pick up um, this broken, what, what I thought was pretty broken system, with really good men and women working there, by the way, to be very clear. People were doing what they thought was right and with some really good people, but it was a host, host of reasons why it had gone wrong. Um, and I was convicted because while I went to tell that family all the bad news about how their son died, before I started, the woman, Helen Panachuk was the name of the woman. Helen started praying for me. And, uh, it chokes me, I'm not talking about it. But um, that woman, she could have been full of anger, of bitterness. She, her son had died in prison, needlessly, totally needlessly. And yet this woman was offering me grace, was offering me extension. Here I was, this only white guy in a village of 350 Inupiaq Eskimos, out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of December, December 2015. I'd been to that village before because I'd worked in the DA's office in rural Alaska. 
And um, my, my heart was turned. Talk about repenting. I repented right there. I said, God, if you give me the chance to, do, to, to speak into something, I'll do it. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand how it's going to work because this is like a loser by my, by my analysis here. There's no way I'm going to, the staff are going to be suspicious of me. People are going to think I'm out to, you know, to lay waste to the department. I've said all these things now. I've delivered the bad news. Um, but isn't that the journey? I'm sure a lot of your listeners have probably similar stories where you go like, that's just not going to work out. <laughs> then all of a sudden, God just changes your heart mm. and your mindset. And I've had, I mean, there's been, a, I figure a lot of times there's like the path is wide about kind of where God wants me to go sometimes, like, but not on this one. This was very, this was a real <laughs> clear moment where it's like, you have an opportunity to make a difference here. If you, if you say no to that, Dean, still love you, but um, you know that this is something you're called into. Man, incredible stuff in that episode. And so much of this just makes my heart leap and makes Julie's heart leap as we think about uh, not only our friend, but just so many others behind bars that don't feel any hope. There's stories of the church right now showing up to be an incredible light and incredible witness. We see the reforms that are happening in, in a system many think is hopeless and has been broken and has been jacked up for a long, long time, and yet God has really brought Dean and his team into office at the right time to bring change and to bring reform. So I love this conversation, guys. There's more nuggets that are coming in our next episode. I couldn't cut any of this. It was such good stuff. So next time, we'll get into a little bit more of his story, a little bit more of his faith, some of the tensions that he holds each week, and how he stays healthy as a leader. So make sure to tune in for the next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. So long.